Adam, 2008 was a problem because of too much debt. Look out the window. Since 2008, the debt has skyrocketed everywhere. Even China has a lot of debt now. So all I'm saying is, and I don't know when it's coming, that the next time it's going to be a nasty, horrible, disastrous bear market. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart. I'm battling a pretty bad head cold right now, folks, so thanks for hanging with me with my scratchy voice here. The past few years have been full of surprises, often going the exact opposite way that Wall Street expected at the start of each year. Well, as we prepare to enter 2024, it may help to tap the expertise of those investors who have been around the longest and been the most successful. High on that list is Jim Rogers, legendary international investor, financial commentator, and author of several best-selling books on wealth building. Jim, thanks so much for coming on the program today, all the way from Singapore. I am delighted to hear, be here, Adam. Your introduction really means people who are old, who've been around because they're old. Well, that is- I've been around partly because I'm old. <laughs> that is highly correlated with wisdom, so. Um, By the way, I'm delighted to be old. I can think of the alternative, so I'm very happy. Yes, yes, we're glad that you're old and well, that you're you're uh, we'll say long in the tooth. But Jim, you are one of the youngest at heart people I know, and uh, I know it's morning your time, but something tells me you know you're going to be hitting some of the nightclubs uh, out there in Singapore uh, before too long. I got to go to the disco. You're right. <laughs> what would I do otherwise? <laughs> Uh, well, look, you're an inspiration to all of us. Uh, look, a uh, number of questions. Very excited to have you back on here. Um, last couple of times we've talked, you have uh, you know, said that you were very concerned sort of about the macro situation. I seem to remember comments like, uh, you know, we may have the, the worst bear market of, of your lifetime. Um, I want to get into kind of your latest uh, status on that, whether you still think the same or not. But if we can start just a little bit higher first which is what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Okay, quickly, just let me quickly clarify what I have said, and I will say again, the next time we have a bear market, and I don't know when it's coming, at Thoughtful Money they know, but I know we're going to have more bear markets, and I know that the next one is going to be the worst in my lifetime. Adam, 2008 was a problem because of too much debt. Look out the window. Since 2008, the debt has skyrocketed everywhere. Even China has a lot of debt now. So all I'm saying is, and I don't know when it's coming, that the next time it's going to be a nasty, horrible, disastrous bear market. Now, how I see the world right now, one of the things that history has taught us is the year before an American election, usually the market, the American market is fairly strong. And that's because all the politicians know the election is coming. And so they try to make everybody happy. You pull the out election. all the stops, right? Yes. And it's happened again. I mean, we had 2023. It's been a reasonably good year in most markets around the world. But we're talking about Americans, certainly in the American market. So now, now what? Your question is now what? Yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. Um, History is great for 2023. What about 2024? Well, I am starting to, well, first of all, it's the longest period in American history without a problem. We have never had such a long period. Adam, it doesn't mean it won't go on 40 years. I have no idea. It never has, but it, who knows? Who knows? But I'm starting to see signs 
And by the way, I have not sold anything short. I do have a lot of cash, but I've not been shorting. Uh, I'm starting to see signs. You see the signs that fewer and fewer shares are going up. They go up every day. Some shares go up every day. A lot of new people are coming into the market, inexperienced people coming in, and they all talk about how much fun it is and how easy, how easy it is to make money. Well, it's never been easy for me, but if it's easy for somebody, that's probably a bad sign. So I see some of the signs. The debt is skyrocketing. Some of the signs that have happened before. So I'm worried, but I'm not shorting yet. Often at the end of a long bull market, there's a blow off, you know, where everything just skyrockets. I don't know if we're going to have one again, but I'm waiting in case we do. And I hope I'm smart enough to short it if it happens. Okay. And, and let's actually talk about that really quickly. So if you see that blow off spike, and I have been talking to people recently, Jim, that have been bringing up historical precedent, which shows that the the markets really get into party mode, usually right before the end of, uh, or right prior to a big correction, right? When most of the recessions we've gone into, the stock market has partied right up into them. Um, so if you start seeing those same signs of a, you know, a manic meltup, you're actually going to be shorting into that, or are you going to wait to see it fail and then start to get in on shorts? How do you time your shorts? Adam, I'm the worst market timer in the world. Are you asking me? Because <laughs> I'm just um, curious. You said you were going to short, so I'm curious what you're well, looking for. If it happens this way, if we do start seeing the blow-off period, I will be shorting into the blow-off. Okay. But I will be too soon. I promise you I'll be too soon. Yeah, and, and, and I hope folks who are watching, I've talked a lot in this program with a lot of people about the risks of shorting, uh, yet your timing has to be really right. Jim is highly experienced and I would venture to say can afford losses more than the average viewer on this channel. So if you're going to go short into a mania, be very, very careful about it. Ideally, use some hedges to protect you in case your short bets are wrong. And your other question, part of your question was maybe you should wait until it fails. And that is sometimes an extremely good way to do things. Okay. Well, kind of at the heart of what I believe to be your, your macro outlook, Jim, um, is debt, which you've already mentioned a couple of times here. And it's been, you know, growing exponentially over the decades, right? I mean, I, I think we had something like $9 trillion in federal debt going into the global financial crisis, and we're, what, $33 trillion now? Um, and of course, that's just on the federal side. So um, what I don't see happening there is a... I just don't see a lot of potential for that exponential growth trajectory to flatten out at all. Um, in fact, you know, to a certain extent, it's a feature, not a bug of a fiat monetary system where, where money is borrowed into existence. But also, as you know, politicians, they're always going to spend and kick the can down the road if they're able to. So my question is, is do you sort of see all this ending uh, in an inevitable um default of the currency versus a default of the bad debts you know you can kind of tackle a debt problem one of two ways you can you can let the the bad debts default right or you can just print 
Well, unfortunately, uh, not unfortunately, the, the U.S. dollar is the world's main currency. Now, unfortunately, that's beginning to change because more and more people are starting to see that the U.S. debt goes skyrocketing. And, you know, in Washington, Adam, if you have the world's reserve currency, it's supposed to be neutral. Anybody can use it for anything. But unfortunately, Washington is now changing those rules. If Washington gets angry at you, they cut you off. You know, they say you cannot use the U.S. dollar. Well, many people, including our friends, are starting to say, wait, 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 wait. This is serious. It could happen to us. It could happen to anybody. And so many people are now, because of Washington, are starting to accelerate to look for something else to compete with the dollar, including me. I'm looking to. I don't see anything on the horizon yet. Should be the Chinese currency, but it's a blocked currency, so it cannot be the Chinese renminbi. And I don't know. I own a lot of U.S. dollars, and I own them because I know that in turmoil, people look for a safe haven, and they will think the U.S. dollar is a safe haven. But as I just said, that's coming to an end. So now I am, I and others are accelerating the search for what do we do next? What do we use if we cannot use dollars? And I don't, and Adam, if you know, don't announce it on the show. Send me an email. No, <laughs> Send me a private email. I'm looking. Tell you first. Okay. Well, I think you've answered where I was going here. Um, but let me just draw a delineation. Um you know, there's there's what's likely to happen in the near term, and and I agree with you, Jim. I don't think the U.S. dollar is you know going anywhere. It's, it's still the best course in the glue factory. You know, whichever analogy you want to use. Um, you know, my question was sort of more on the longer time, the scope of the couple of decades from out here. Like, does this does this exponential growth in debt end in essentially hyperinflation of all the major world fiat currencies? Because the U.S. is not unique in this, right? And if it does, you're nodding as I'm saying this. So if it does, if that is the long term, and again, Jim, you might not be around for this. I might not be around for this. Um, what does that world look like, do you think? And I'm just asking you to totally speculate here. You know, does well, it, Do we go back to a, try another fiat system, some sort of global world currency, or do we go back to hard backing? Do we say, look, we did the fiat experiment. It didn't work. We're going to come back with something that's a little more tied to reality. Well, what has happened in the well, the last reserve currency was British pound. You know, in nineteen twenty-three, British pound was it was it. There was no there was no competitor. There was no number two. Fifty years later, nineteen seventy-six to be exact, Britain went bankrupt. IMF had to fly into Heathrow and pay their bills. It was that serious. That is a is the currency that went from number one to fifty years later bankrupt. That's what happened. And during that period of time, you know, it was miserable in, in Britain. You had, you couldn't take money out of the country. You could take only a little bit if you went on a foreign trip. You know, with the value of the currency went down almost every week. There were serious exchange controls. There were high debts, high interest rates. Britain was a disaster. Now, Adam, there were always people who did well in Britain. Even I mean, the Beatles didn't leave. The Beatles stayed and made a lot of money. <laughs> but most people who were in Britain in those 50 years did not have a good time. That is what's always happened in countries and currencies which go through this. Am I looking forward to it? No, but I'm just saying what has happened in the past. And 
I don't see how we, we the U.S., can avoid that. Maybe you have an answer. And people will, in those days, moved from the British pound to the U.S. dollar. My problem is I don't know where to move, which currency to move to now, because I don't see another one. Right. And and I'm I'm kind of with you right there. And, you know, in 1976, the U.S. dollar was fully fiat, but it was still kind of coasting, you know, on the momentum of having been tied to gold. So it wasn't as as abused as I think it's it's become to date. So there was a credible, you know, alternative there. Um, I guess where I'm going with this is if, if neither of us sees a good fiat substitute waiting in the wings, I know you've written a lot in your career about commodities. You know, does that lead you to, to still be quite optimistic about commodities as people look to preserve purchasing power in the long run? By the way, in the 1970s, the United States was still a creditor nation. I know it's a shock, but the shock. U.S. was still a creditor nation in the 1970s, believe it or not. Well, when these things happen, of course, real assets do better than fiat money because people want something real, whether it's gold or cotton or whatever it happens to be. And so, yes, it will be another push for people to own real assets. I don't like any of this, Adam, but I have to face facts. And so it will help real assets, commodities more than anything, more than other things. Okay, good. And th those were the things that I wanted to sort of validate with you here since we last talked, which is, yes, you still see that when the next big correction happens, it is likely to be the, the biggest of your lifetime. And, and I'm taking from that, Jim, is because the system is so distorted here, um, it's almost like if you pull an elastic band further than you've ever pulled it, you're going to have the biggest snapback that you've ever had. And then secondly, you are still um, optimistic about commodities for, for the reasons that we've talked about in the past. In in the short term, and again, I want to delineate timeframes for people. In the short term, you know, people can, you know, may still, paper may still be where the, the game is being played in terms of returns in the market. And, you know, certainly... 2023 was an example of that, right? Great year for stocks. Um, ended up seeing a real catch-up moment for bonds here at the end of the year too. And like you said, you're, you're seeing a lot of um, exuberance going back into the markets here. So it doesn't mean that that we're going to fall into this world tomorrow of dollar collapse and, and commodities, you know, finally having their, their big run. So I just want to make sure that people are, are aware that, you know, neither of us here is calling for, hey, sell everything tomorrow and just go into, you know, sacks of flour and coffee and stuff like that. Uh, but I guess you're, you're saying that you're concerned about current valuations. You're concerned about the um, increasing maybe lack of, of um, or, or you're concerned about the degree of speculation that seems to be flooding into the markets right now. And you, you talked about sort of the retail investor. That, that tends to be kind of a hallmark, right? Which is the retail investor sort of tends to be the patsy that shows up at the end of the party, right? Adam is not just retail investors. It happens to all of us. You know, I wish that retail investors were the only bad investors or the only ones who make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And I just want to go back to what you were com your comment. I, I, I repeat, I do own a lot of U.S. dollars right now. I don't see a great future, but I see a lot of U.S. dollars in my uh, portfolio because I see problems coming 
And usually people think the U.S. dollar is a safe haven when there's serious problems. Got it. And, and when you're holding it in the U.S. dollar, are you holding it in, in cash equivalents like treasuries? And if you are, what's your breakdown between short duration, like super safe T-bills, but long duration? Because if, if people do rush into treasuries for safety, there is an argument to be made to play the long end for that, too. Adam, I'm too lazy for all of that. I mainly okay. use money market funds now. Okay. They're very simple. Okay. And so I'm you're, lazy. you're playing it. To, your, your strategy, it sounds like, is make the easy money, stay liquid, stay out of the game because you don't like valuations. And then when there are better valuations, you'll have your dry powder to deploy. Right. I, the only thing I worry about is your term easy money. There's never been any easy money yeah. in my in my career yeah. in the investment world. Where where is this easy money? Yeah, great. Where question. can I find it? Yeah. Oh my, I want some of it. <laughs> All right. Well, look. Um. Uh. Let's. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions first. So it it's been, you know, kind of a heck of a year from uh, the central planning standpoint. Right. We had we had uh, this, this, you know, higher for longer for pretty much the entire year, um, although we just had Powell basically seem to give the market a nod that he's going to start, you know, going back to rate cuts next year, more than the market was currently expecting. Um, as part of that higher for longer, we we ended up seeing some real weakness in the banking system that forced the Fed and the Treasury to get involved. Um, wh what do you see going forward here from the central planners? Um do you see them, uh, you know, continuing to sort of try to stage manage this economy? Do you think the soft landing, no landing that Powell was talking about is actually possible to engineer at this point? Um, I'll end there. Let you go. Well, first of all, I, I hasten to tell you that in America, we, we've had three central banks in American history. The first two disappeared for many reasons. Uh, <laughs> this one's going to disappear, too, someday because they keep making so many mistakes. But we haven't had, I can only think of a couple of good central bankers in our history, in our instance, uh, 1913. Uh, and Powell's not one of them. He's not on my list of, of a good central banker. So I have learned, you have to listen to them because they have influence. But I have learned, they don't know what they're doing. So don't think that they know what they're doing and what they say is accurate. It's not. Now, the problem is, you have to figure out what's accurate then, you know, since they're not right. And we can't just take their word for it. We have to figure out what's going to happen. I, my suspicion, but it's only, I, it's only a suspicion, is that inflation, you know, markets will go like this. They go up, they correct, they go up, they correct. That's been happening with inflation. Inflation has been correcting, as all markets do. I would suspect, though, that by this time next year, inflation will have reared its ugly head, even to the public, and we will all be wondering, what do we do now? And that interest rates will be going higher again. Uh, I hope Mr. Powell can cut rates, and I hope he's smart enough to do it, if, it's, if that's appropriate. But I don't have much confidence. You know, Adam, so much money has been printed in the last few years. I mean, just unbelievable amounts of money. And not just in the U.S., although we led the way. But the Bank of Japan, I mean, it's unbelievable. A guy goes to work every day like a good Japanese bureaucrat, goes early, cranks up the printing presses, and prints money as fast as he can. 
the amount of money being printed in Japan is unbelievable. It's unbelievable in America too, has been anyway, but that's happening all over the world now. So I am worried that inflation has not gone away for good. You, you've, you took it exactly where I wanted to go, which is you see, uh, you know, probability of inflation resurging, which uh, may also be accompanied by the, the central banks either retightening um, or maybe just the bond market itself, you know, starting to raise the, the longer end of the curve. So interest rates could come back up. Um, let me ask you about your comments there about the monetary easing. Um, what's been so interesting to me is, is this year, past year and a half, the, the narrative has been, hey, we're in a tightening cycle, right? Fed's raising, hiking interest rates more than it's ever done. And uh, it's doing QT to the tune of a, a trillion dollars. <clears throat> but if you look at net liquidity in the system, it's actually been rising since October 2022. And I think that that explains a lot uh, in terms of how the markets have performed, right? Once net liquidity flows reversed pretty much at the same time, so so did the markets and they powered, powered higher all year along with, with liquidity. So you talk about the central banks are now you know, they've got their hammer, the monetary, you know, stimulus. Um, what's been different this time around, to, to your point about the gargantuan amount of stimulus that, that we did during COVID, has been the addition of the fiscal side of things, right? And and we're, we have a ridiculous fiscal spending situation going on right now in, in a lot of countries, certainly in the U.S. And my, my question for you is, you know, just like the bear that, you know, subsists on berries, but once it gets a taste of meat, he doesn't want to ever eat berries again, right? You know, are we in a new world where both politicians and the public, when anything starts to go wrong, just demands stimulus from all sides? Because, hey, we did it before. If we did it then, we should do it now. I am delighted that you pointed out the fiscal situation because, yes, not just the U.S., but especially the U.S., it's been unbelievable amounts of money, borrowed unbelievable amounts and spent unbelievable. I mentioned Japan before. I mean, Japan's got a huge economy and they're doing it too. Many people are doing it. So we have both monetary, always we've had a monetary situation and a fiscal situation. And at the moment, I mean, Adam, it's a good time to be an old American. Yeah. Because <laughs> no, young Americans are going to have huge huge problem someday with all this money that's being borrowed and spent. I mean, the numbers are mind-boggling. So it's a good thing we're older than 22. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we have children. We worry about the world that we're leaving to them. Um, I, I do, though, think about that Titler quote, and I'm going to butcher it here, but it's something like, you know, democracies can only last as long as uh, up until the point the public realizes it can vote itself largesse from the treasury, right? And I, I do worry that we may have just sort of crossed that line with the pandemic worldwide and that that will well, be the operating, you know, that, that will be the MO for any crisis going forward until we have perhaps just really destroyed the currencies. I suspect someday we're along the line, somebody is going to run in a basis of We've got to do something about this debt. And everybody, the voters, you and me, are all going to say, he's right, let's elect him. And then we will elect him. But then six months later, we're all going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This hurts too much. What are you talking about? 
This is gigantic pain. This is torture. And they'll get rid of it and we'll print more money. That's what often has happened in history. Uh, totally very true. And I think, you know, um, we are kind of our own worst enemies here as humans, right? You know, politicians as humans, their incentive is to kick the can down the road, right? Any problem that can happen today, better to voice off and somebody else in the future. And as a populace, we generally want the easy fix, demand the easy fix and say, hey, we'll deal with the repercussions later on. Of course, we don't like it when we have to, right? So I do worry that we're just not well fit as a species to deal with an exponential debt crisis. crisis. It's just not in our, our wheelhouse. But I'm curious. I love your, if I, your thoughts. If, go ahead. If I could just interject for a minute and go back to use the Japanese model, because it is a gigantic economy, the second or third largest in the world. They have staggering amounts of debt, and they have a declining population. That's not a typo. Declining population for several years, debt going through the roof, and every day they go deeper and deeper into debt, and they print more and more money. Now, these are successful, educated people, like Americans, like people in what? Well, I guess the people in Washington are successful and educated people. But in Japan, we have educated, successful people. And I say to myself, how can they do this? How can they go, go every day and print more money and run up higher and higher and higher debt with a population in decline? Adam, they do it. They do it. They're human beings, too, just like you, all of us. And it is happening before our eyes. So strange things can happen with politicians and always have throughout history. And don't think the people in Washington are any smarter. They never have been. Uh, don't worry, Jim, at least not on my end. I, I don't have that overconfidence in them. <clears throat> um, well, look, I'm, I'm curious on this, especially since you have a, you know, a, an interesting perspective sitting out of the U.S., but having you know grown up here. Um, what do you think about what's going on in Argentina right now? And forgive me, the cold meds I'm on, my brain's a little foggy. I can't remember the name of the, the new president there. But the, the guy who basically said, look, let's break the cycle of hyperinflation here. Let's get rid of the central bank, peg our currency to the U.S. dollar and go from there. Well, yes, he said a lot of wonderful things. <laughs> Fortunately, I've been around Argentina a long time and I've heard it many times. Many times where the Argentinians elect a new guy or somebody comes riding in on a white horse with very sound policies and actually does them. And they have they have reverted or converted to the U.S. dollar at times in their history. I've heard it's not my first rodeo, Adam. I've seen them. I've seen this movie in Argentina before. And he says wonderful things. Let's see. We can ask me in three years. Ask me in five years. Okay. But it's you're not perfect. Hold your breath, is what you're saying, though. He's saying all the right things. He's saying good things. Not all, but he mainly what he's saying is very sound. Let's see. Yeah, and you know, like I know to a lot of people listening, we probably sound pretty pessimistic, and I guess to a, a, a certain extent we are. But you know, I, I do at the end of the day sort of have the. Um, the faith that I think it was that Winston Churchill said, he said it about Americans, but I think it's basically true of humans in general, which is you can always count on us to do the right thing after we've exhausted every other potential option yeah. out there, right? Yeah. And, and the yes. question really is, is how much pain 
are we willing to endure before the, the pain of change is less than the pain of maintaining the status quo? And sadly, history generally tends to show it can be super high. I just finished, sorry to go off here a little bit on a tangent, but I just finished this new series on Netflix uh, following World War II. And it's it's great because it's it's sort of like a World War II for dummies. Uh, it, it's it's you know, six episodes. It gives you a good sense of what happened timeline wise, but it's all done from local footage that's been colorized and restored, oftentimes using AI. It's really pretty amazing. But you see what's going on inside Germany there, and you're just like, my God, like how did those people go along with all that, right? But to to your kind of points earlier, Jim, it tends to sometimes be like a creep where every the increment of every day is not shocking enough to get you to change your behavior. Right. It's only when you found yourself down the road long enough and have said, my God, what have we done is when you potentially start reevaluating. Well, I guess you actually hit the nail on the head when you said each day is not enough of, of a change and you barely notice it. Six months later, six years later, you say, oh, my gosh, how'd this happen? What do we do now? And I guess that's the way human beings are. Uh, you you have the same insights that other smart people do okay all right eventually well, eventually it happens and we throw in the towel and say we've got to do something yeah and again to my question how much pain do we need to take before we actually get to that that decision and i don't think we're anywhere near that point yet simply because we're not having a conversation about it you know we're the we're the addict that hasn't admitted they have a problem yet so until you do that at least nothing's adam possible. the american stock market is at all-time highs what pain? Yeah. <laughs> what pain are you talking about? That's what you'll get. Now, of course, and Jim, I don't know how much of this you see. You know, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of fracturing, I would say, of, of the social, um, you know, of, of society here in the U.S., where you're seeing more you're starting to see a lot more pushback, especially on the working class in the middle classes um, about how hard it is to, to get by, you know, with the increase in the cost of living um, and uh, you know, to a certain extent, some of the losses of, of freedoms that have come along with with some of the crises that we've had over the, the past years. Um, but that's a really good question, too, which is what might be we hit first, a financial crisis or a social crisis where you have enough people that the system just really stops working for that they take matters into their own hands in a certain way? I mean, I don't I'm not I'm not expecting pitchforks and torches and, you know, Civil War or anything, but but certainly uh, revolt at the at the election box and you know uh, other things like that. Well, if I look out the window, I see basically full employment. I see the stock market at all time highs. I see, yeah, I know everybody's complaining, including me. But the simple facts are: huge employment, stock market's going through the roof. Anybody can get a job if, if she wants, if he wants, from what I read anyway. So, well, well sorry, let me is... just push back on that so you can you can address it in your continued answer. That's all true. I'm not denying any of that. And, and I, I, I'm, you know, re, I'm, I'm being increasingly convinced by the people that I've been interviewing of late who are saying, look, the day the recession is just not in the data right now. <clears throat> but the things you mentioned, stock market at all time highs. Yeah. But 90 percent of financial wealth is owned by the top 10 percent of households. Right. Um, low unemployment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's low, but there's over 100 million working age Americans that are not considered to be in the labor, labor force. 
right? So there's there's a lot being masked at the same time. And I'm, I'm not trying to paint a picture that the country is tipping into civil unrest tomorrow. I'm just saying if we just look at those headline numbers, it doesn't necessarily tell the full story. But usually in history, there comes a time when even the headlines are, oh, my God, what do we do next? Yep. You know, you remember Cox's army, you know, in the 30s, military veterans marched on Washington. I'm talking about the United States of America. Military, American military veterans marched on Washington called Cox's army. Things were pretty bad. And those headlines are not happening now. Absolutely true. And I guess to your point about <laughs> whenever it happens, Four months from now, four years from now, 40 years from now, whatever, we get that worst uh, correction uh, of your lifetime. Uh, do you see the danger of that type of social fracture? Throughout history, that has led, what we are seeing now and can see and may well see has led to social fracturing, whether we like it or not. You know, you mentioned Argentina before. Argentina's had serious collapses at times and huge social fracturing, but everybody has. Everybody, the United States of America has at we times. Have, although not so much in living memory that much anymore. No, 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 it's not, no. And I'm glad it's not in living memory. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. I mean, me, me too, but at the same time, we may not have enough, the, the, the resilience that some other countries like Argentina do, that this is a every couple of year thing for them, every 10 years. But I will just, you know, the United States is the largest debtor nation in the history of the world, et cetera. I hope that we never have any problems that other countries have had in situations like this. Okay. But and the reason why I'm digging into this with you, Jim, is you are a student of history um, and you also live outside the U.S. You've seen regime change. I mean, you guys just had it not that long ago in um Sri Lanka, right, where that was pretty extreme regime change, right? So you live in a part of the world where, you know, this isn't necessarily an academic topic, right? Um, so you you truly know what, what can happen here. And again, I'm not trying to scare people or, or say that it's, you know, again, happening tomorrow, but I, I value your perspective because I think you have a much closer finger to the pulse of really what's happening sort of in, in grand cycles than, than most people. I hope you will try to scare people. I hope you will, because, Adam, if people are scared, they will become knowledgeable. And if they become knowledgeable, they will be prepared. And if you're prepared, you can survive anything. So I hope you will scare people. I hope you don't tell everybody, don't worry, everything is fine. Things are great. I hope. And even if they are, Adam, people should at least be aware of all the facts and Absolutely. know what's going on. And that, that's part of the balance I've been trying to go <laughs> back to in this conversation, which is a lot of these risks we're talking about are, are long-term risks. And um, I don't want to give people the sense that we're saying this is all happening tomorrow. In other words, we might have a great bull run in the market you know, for the next quarter or whatever. And I don't want to give people the impression that they got to sell everything tomorrow and go straight to you know the bunker, if you will. Um, all right, well, look, last sort of scary topic, and then we'll start to wind it up here, Jim. Um, Again, you are a commodities expert. Um, your your command of natural resources is is legendary, literally. Um, we've talked about some of these challenges that the world faces. 
Uh, you talked about the weaponization of the financial industry that's now sort of part of the geopolitical playbook. Um, how concerned are you about wars going forward as we are having this, you know, shift from a fairly multi, a fairly unipolar, you know, Pax Americana um, to a more, you know, Team America and Team BRICS, if you will, um, as countries begin to compete more and more for these resources, um, do you think the market will sort of take care of things, or are you are you worried that that the competition could heat up in ways that we wouldn't like? Adam, I'm always worried. I invest in the <laughs> markets. If you don't, if you invest in the markets and you're not always worried, you don't know what's going on. But let me just go back to something you said, Pax Americana. Yes, that's Washington puts out that propaganda. But there was a study done recently. Uh, the United States has been a country since 1776. In all but 18 years, we have been at war. It's a horrifying fact. It's a fact. It's a simple historic fact. We are always at war with somebody. So I'm not, I'm not proud of this at all. Uh, it worries me even more. But for some reason, those people in Washington like war. We're not very good at it anymore. We haven't won a war in a long time. But they like it. And so Pax Americana worries me. And that's the way many people in Washington think. They think, we'll show them. We'll give them peace. <laughs> we'll send an army to give them peace. So I worry about a lot of things. And that's one of them that somehow or another, we, we the Americans, we might stumble into a war because those people in Washington like it. Well, let me let me ask your opinion on this. So this is very germane to the topic, which is um, the week we're talking here. Uh, Houthi rebels in the Red Sea have attacked uh, Western shipping barges, uh, tankers. And, um, you know, basically trade is now shut through the Suez Canal. Right. And that's kind of a knock on effect of what's going on in Israel here. Right. So we have these sort of flashpoints that are seem to be happening with maybe more frequency than we would like that aren't just necessarily regional squabbles that they can pull the big guys in uh, and certainly cutting off the Suez Canal, that's 12% of global trade, right? So those ships are gonna find their way to, to their ports eventually, but at like a 40% increase in time delay and cost, that's, that's gonna be inflationary, right? So, um, you know, the circulatory system of the global economy can be very disrupted the more that that geopolitics become contentious. Um, and I'm just curious how much of this worries you going forward. You know, will we see more of it than we've seen, say, in the past 30 years? How much it worries me? It worries me enormously. I just got to tell you, Washington's always been at war. You know, in, before the First World War in 1914, the German royal family and the English royal family used to vacation together. They would have parties together. They would intermarry, et cetera. Right. And then in 1914, only a few months later, they were slaughtering each other, hating each other, the whole world. And everybody, of course, in October of 1914 said, don't worry, this will be over by Christmas. And of course, you know, Six years, months later, everybody was saying, how the hell did we get into this? How do we get out? How do we get out of this crazy war? And you know, it took four years. Disaster, gigantic disaster. 
So when these accidents happen, whatever reason, and, and by the way, in that war, just a little history more than you might care about probably, but the archbishop, the, uh, the king, the emperor of Germany said to Serbia, or the emperor of Austria said to Serbia, because his son had been killed, assassinated in Serbia, these are non-demands. You must do these things. Serbia agreed to eight of them. Serbia agreed to eight of the demands from the Archduke of, what was he called, the Arch something, the, the Emperor of Austria. Serbia agreed, said, okay, we'll do it. The eight of his nine demands. The old man, he was 86 years old, said, too bad, I'm going to slaughter you all. And the next thing you know, we were all in this gigantic war that could not end for four years. So these things happen, and you just mentioned, sure. I see what's going on in the Red Sea. You see what's going on. And who knows what we could stumble into. Most wars happen by people who make mistakes and make accidents. And then a few months later, everybody says, how do we get out? The problem is, Adam, how do we get out of wars once they start? It's bad enough that they start. But then the problem is we can't get out. Right. Look at Vietnam. Vietnam was all based on fraud in Washington. It went on for over a decade because we couldn't get out. My uh, my daughter, my older daughter, was born on the day that we invaded Afghanistan. And it was crazy when she turned 20. And I realized, oh, my God, that war is still going on. That war is exactly as old as my daughter. Really creepily, that same day, October 7th, um, was the day that the... Uh, that Hamas attacked Israel too. So, so now that war is tied to her birthday as well, which is crazy. Uh, oh, it's your daughter's actual... fault. All maybe, of this maybe, is maybe your daughter's fault. Yeah. Now we know. Maybe, maybe we have the world scapegoat now. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, look. Um, now that we've completely freaked everybody out, um, let's let's bring it back to you know. There's not a ton that we as individuals can do about what the great powers decide to do geopolitically. Um, but we can control how we can react to them. And assuming for a moment that that things continue, you know, as they are for at least the, the foreseeable short term, uh, it sounds from what I'm hearing from you, I want to sort of ask about your your market outlook and how you're positioning. It sounds like your market outlook is, hey, things are richly valued. You expect some sort of pullback at some time. You're largely sitting in cash. Um, you're planning to do some shorting um, when you see the froth really get crazy. Is there anything else you would add to that description? Uh, you did a very good job, better job than I did. Okay, so basically you're playing it safe right now. Well, I don't know if I'm playing it safe. Maybe I'm playing it foolish. Maybe I should be 100% invested right now, but I am worried. I'd, I've seen this rodeo before. This has been going on since 2009, the longest in American history. I see signs that I've seen before, but maybe I'm going to wait too long. My timing is usually pretty bad, so... I guess everybody should listen to Adam. No, no. Well, look, in full disclosure, the video that's going to have run right before this one, Jim, is with Darius Dale, who has a very detailed model where, you know, he doesn't, his opinion doesn't come into play in terms of portfolio allocation. It's just what the model says he should do. And that's saying that the next three months, it's clear sailing, Right. And he very well may, may be true, right? I mean, you you yourself said, hey, you, you think this could get even frothier, right? And so I just want to 
I want to highlight for folks why we have different voices on this channel, right? We have some people like Darius who are very technical, just looking at, you know, the market as it is. And then we have people like Jim who have decades and decades of market experience and, you know, lots of success investing who have the perspective of having seen many of these cycles and being able to see patterns and things like that, right? And so, uh, and, and there's also different ways to invest, right? Some people might say, hey, I'm just going to surf three months out because that's what I've got confidence I can see. And I would say Lance Roberts, who's a uh, one of the financial advisors that this channel refers people to, that's more of his mantra. But then there are other people like you, Jim, who say, I, I look for sort of, you know, big turning points and I'm happy not really overstretching myself until... I feel like the odds are are better than normal that uh, I can make some money here. I hope, but I make many mistakes, Adam. I wish it were that simple. <laughs> I wish it were that simple. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Uh, I would be even be happy, Adam. I'd even be happy to have good luck. You know, <laughs> I wish I wish luck could come to help me sometime. Well, you know, Jim, I, I, I got to say, having talked to a lot of people like yourself who have been um, capital managers, the honest ones have said, luck plays a pretty big role in this industry. Like, really, we're we're really out there trying to hit, you know, consistent singles and doubles, and, and maybe if we're lucky, we get a triple. But the home runs are rare, and half, most of the time, it's something that we didn't think necessarily was going to be a home run. And yeah, we all hope for the year where we have an amazing, you know, return that we can brag about at the end of the year. But if we're honest with ourselves, that that's just luck. And and for most people who are looking for a capital manager, again, this is where our, our evolutionary wiring works against us. We look at the guy who had a great year, he outperformed. So we say, I want to be with that guy, right? Well, we just got his lucky year. So you're, you're highly likely to basically have reversion of the mean come into play soon after. Well, he'll underperform, right? See, you know a lot about markets. I can tell. <laughs> well, that's just from interviewing guys like you, Jim. So it's not your it's not your first rodeo either. Not my first rodeo. <laughs> like, like you though, I'd, I'd take some luck if it were offered to me. Um, all right. Well, look, I want to um, I want to start wrapping things up here. Um, I, I want to, um, uh, if I can, uh, two last questions for you. The second one I'm going to ask right after I do some housekeeping, and that one just so you can noodle on it, is we've talked a lot about building wealth right now. Um, what's a non-money related investment that you would encourage people to develop in their life or adopt? I've been asking this question recently, and I've really been enjoying the answers that I've been getting. Uh, but before I ask you that question, for folks that have really enjoyed this conversation, Jim, and would like to follow you, um, where can they go? Oh, I don't, I don't have anything, Adam. I don't have any newsletter or anything. I'm just a simple person trying to make a living. Should they I've just search some... on Jim Rogers? Well, I have. There's jimrogers.com, but that's there you go. not much there. You were not go. You're not going to get any hot tips from jimrogers.com. That's just a simple. That's my schedule mainly. Uh, I went around the world a couple of times. It's part of one of my trips. No, I, I don't have anything to sell, Adam. No, but Sorry. you have a lot of wisdom to give. So I'm going to, when I, when I edit this, Jim, I will put up an overlay where I just have searched Jim Rogers, at least do a news search, because when you do make these uh, interview appearances, uh, that often gets covered in the media. So if folks want to stay on track of what you're seeing, that's a good way for them to do that. All right, Jim, we're here at this last question. Um, you've got daughters. I've got daughters. We've talked about, you know, this in the past of, you know, some of the life advice that we 
like to try to give them. But what's what's a non-monetary investment you would encourage you know folks watching this this uh, video here to consider investing in or exploring uh, once they're done watching this? Beware of boys. <laughs> beware yeah. of boys but no the other the, the thing i try i i guess the thing i try to teach them most is to persevere we all know people who are smart who are not successful we know educated people are not supposed su successful we know talented people are not successful the people who are successful in the end in our in most people's lives are the nuts who just never give up so the one word, the most important word I'm trying to teach my daughter is persevere, persevere, persevere. Great, great recommendation. Um, one of my favorite books, Jim, was Grit by Alex Duckworth, which is exactly about the importance of perseverance. Um, and really, when you look at test scores and things like that in the education system, yes, there's some correlation, but not nearly as much as we think in terms of life success. In fact, the people who tend to succeed the most in life were not the curve wreckers in school, right? Uh, but these are people who just have tenacity, discipline, commitment, and the ability to, um, you know, what's the old saying? It's not how many times you get knocked down, it's it's how many times you get back up, right? Um, yeah. So fantastic, fantastic recommendation. Um, all right, Jim, well, look, it's always a true pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Enjoy the disco. I'm delighted. To, it's always fun with you, Adam. Persevere. Thank you. All right. Well, now is the time in the channel where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial, one of the endorsed financial advisory firms by Thoughtful Money, uh, to both react to uh, what I discussed with Jim, but also give us uh, their latest view on the markets, especially as we're here last week of the year closing things up for 2023. Uh, I'm joined this week by lead partner, John Lodra. Uh, his partner, Mike Preston, has the week off for the holidays. John, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Adam, thank you very much for having me again. Uh, Michael is on uh, vacation, as you mentioned. Uh, it's a great time of year that hopefully folks can spend time with their family and downshift a little bit. Really, really enjoyed Jim Rogers' comments always. Uh, I appreciate most his his self-deprecation and, and levity and humor to, that he injects into a, a really, uh, in his words, a concerning big picture. Uh, we share those big picture concerns, uh, but these are tectonic shifts that um, can move slowly and oftentimes in, in uh, confusing and um, head-shifting head, uh, ways uh, in, in the opposite direction than what should happen. And we've certainly seen that play out in, in many ways over the last year. Um, uh, Jim talks about uh, the possibility of seeing at, at some point the worst bear market of his lifetime. There are plenty of good data points where that very well may come come to pass. Um, as as benign as that the market may seem right now, that there are things in in valuations and other. You look at where debt is. There, there's plenty of uh, things we can point to that could could be the fuel. But that's that's obviously something that keeps us uh, awake and aware, but not uh, not uh, stalled or, or stuck in our boots here. We're, we're gonna let the market uh, tell us where things are in the short term, but we need to be cognizant of the big picture. But I, I appreciate Jim's, um, he's worried, but uh, not short the market. We were not short the market. We think it's a very dangerous market to be short, uh, but we do emphasize safety and stability. We're holding lots of, uh, short-term treasury bills and cash, just like Jim Rogers is. And we think that's a, a good place to be with a good solid ballast of client portfolios. But um, yeah, that's my big takeaway from, from Jim's comments.
Okay. Yeah. Jim, uh, always a fun guy to listen to. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I took away that I, I believe I mentioned is, you know, I, I'm seeing, uh, a greater variety of opinions as to where things are going to head in 2024, certainly than we saw going into 2023, you know, going into 2023, it seemed like almost everybody was singing from the same song sheet that, uh, you know, a recession was about to happen. Uh, it was going to be another really rocky year. Of course, just about everybody got surprised. Um, we've talked a lot recently about why I think a lot of the sort of stealth liquidity might be an important element in all of that. Um, but one of the things I'm seeing right now is there are, there are people out there who are, um, still very pessimistic about where things are headed. Some that are, think it's going to be more sort of, you know, rocky, you know, give and take. There's going to be some good. There's going to be some bad. A good active investor should be able to make some good money. And then there's folks that are saying, hey, you know, the dashboard looks pretty green. And uh, this isn't true universally, but one of the things I'm kind of noticing is, is it's the younger data-driven crowd who really like just totally operates by their, their, uh, Vulcan models, right? That just say, hey, we've got a proprietary trading model system and I just do what the model tells me to do and that thing's really blinking green. And of course, that's still a relatively short-term outlook. You know, in most cases, it's looking out one, two, three months. And those folks are saying, hey, you know, feeling pretty optimistic about the chance to make money in the near term here. Um, and it's sort of the older crowd. It's the guys that have been around a lot of different market cycles that still tend to be pretty darn pessimistic. Who have said, look, I've seen this movie enough times over to see a lot of similarities here. And whether we're talking to a Felix Zuloff or a David Rosenberg or a Ted Oakley, um, uh, Fred Hickey, uh, uh, Mark Faber or Jim Rogers, you know, those guys are just saying, oh, you know, I, I just I, I, I've seen enough of this in the past to, I, to not feel like we've somehow magically skated through, you know, these past couple of years and all their deformities uh with uh, with no real big reckoning so it's going to be really interesting to see what comes in the future from here and of course both could be right we could have a, a really big you know time in the markets in the short term here and then we could have some sort of event or series of events that that turns things around uh, as the year progresses who knows we'll see but it was sort of interesting uh, to note that it's that that differential between the young bucks and the seasoned old guys out there um all right well look um uh, I know that you prepared a couple of slides, John, and we don't need to dive into them immediately if, we, if, if you don't want to, but um, uh, some of them are somewhat germane to what's going on here. But again, as I mentioned, this is the last uh, video of the year. And so, um, you know, kind of wrapping up, looking at how we did this year, um, kind of an interesting year because it was it was such a positive year for so many assets. But if you take a two-year view, it tells a really different story, right? Yeah, Adam, and I, I, I have to thank you for not throwing my name and or even your name and or Mike Preston's name in the uh, mix of old season folks. We we actually feel like we're perhaps beyond our years. Uh, we're in our early fifties, and I know you are as well. Uh, but look, we've we've managed. We've lived through the last two major bubbles. We've managed client assets through the last two major bubbles, and I'm not even talking about the COVID bubble. I'm talking about the housing and tech bubble. But we have become, we've lived decades through study of market history. So uh, I would I would lump ourselves in, in that uh, that seasoned crew, uh, certainly from a, a perspective of data. Uh, and, and that what the, I think the real important thing is, um, you know, there are a lot of different systems out there. Uh, everybody wants to kind of the 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 magical indicator, you know, uh, the, the single indicator that is a light switch on off to tell you when to get in and out. 
uh, I am going to be the first and of many folks that would say um, that doesn't exist. If you think it exists, you're you're fooling yourself. And in fact, you may find then one that that works and then suddenly doesn't. And and uh, the markets are are going to be very abusive to that kind of approach. Our approach, you know, certainly we're very valuation aware. We think ultimately valuations dictate where um, asset prices go and returns that are likely to be seen over, say, like the next five, seven, ten years. And those are the kind of timeframes that matter most, I would say, for for the kinds of people we serve, our clients who are real people that their their money is not about um, making a headline in the newspaper, but paying for their lifestyle and and creating the retirement security they want and need. Um, so, uh, but our approach is is valuation aware, but we also have you know weight of the evidence. We we follow a bunch of technical dashboards, and I I would say rather than a single magical indicator, be it liquidity or moving averages or whatever, we have a a, a composite, an ensemble of of many different indicators, and it's the um, moving in concert. And I, I like to use the imagery of a of a jigsaw puzzle. Uh, one need not have a complete picture to have a, a really good informed view on what the picture likely looks like. And there's always gonna be some ambiguity, some some uncertainty. That's the nature of, of what investing is all about. You're never gonna have perfect information. And anybody thinks about binary uh, outcomes, I think is fooling themselves. We think about things in terms of probabilities and the weights of those probabilities. But to your point about, um, you know, kind of the maybe the disparate uh, takes of the younger data data folks and the more seasoned folks. I I I liken it to um, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too, but you got to keep things in perspective. So, for example, as bullish as we have talked about our indicators flashing in recent weeks and months, uh, we think there is uh, it's, it's fool foolish to say, for example, put a hundred percent of one's portfolio. Uh, in in adherence to those indicators, because we are in still a very very viciously overvalued market. So we're about we're in the low forty percent allocation to stocks right now. We do have hedges on a bunch of those stocks, but we're more bullish and or, you know we, we're more allocated to stocks right now, for example, than we were earlier in in twenty twenty three. One might say um, we got the timing wrong, and that would be correct in in an absolute way. But we're following our system, right? We're following our discipline, and and the golden rule of success is is having a disciplined system. And it's not about being perfect. We're we're far from perfect, and it's all about here and now and looking forward, not the rearview mirror. And you alluded to, for example, um, you know, uh, the the last couple of years. I think it's really important because we've just crossed a milestone with the with the market strength this year, especially over the last six weeks or six seven weeks. Uh, we have on a total return basis uh, exceeded in the S&P 500, for example, the prior peak of January 3rd of 2022. I got a chart I want to show you there, but let's 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 jump to that, actually. Um, but this is a chart showing um, for broad for major market uh, assets, uh, what the returns total return has been, including dividends from the January 3rd, 2022 peak right through yesterday. Uh I know this this will air on uh, New Year's Eve day, I believe, but this this data this recording today is on uh, December twenty seventh. Um, so you look here, some interesting things come out. So first of all, over that period, uh, gold has been one of the best performers, almost fourteen percent total return over that nearly two year period. The Mag Seven, the the seven stocks that we've talked about ad nauseum, uh, you know, are up about twelve percent uh, over that time frame. Now, um, they're up huge this year, but the reason they're only up only up 12% this year is they were down 
over 40% at the end of last year uh, for 2022. Here's a yeah. shock. So, and sorry to interrupt, but that, that, is, that is interesting given how much tape has been spilled this year and how phenomenally well those seven stocks did do. And they did amazingly well. They had been knocked down so hard the year before that they're only up barely in the double digits over this two-year period. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Here's a shocker: cash, one to month, one to three month treasury bills, up six point six five percent cumulatively over that time frame. Third best on this dashboard of assets that I've got here. The S and P five hundred, you know, uh, the whole uh, the the cap capitalization weighted S and P five hundred, two point seven four percent only over the last couple of years since since January third. Trailing cash handsomely, and of course, much more volatile than cash. Uh, the equal weighted S and P five hundred up a half a percent, 60-40 benchmark, which is maybe the industry standard for folks that are in or near their retirement years, 60% uh, stocks, 40% bonds, down, uh, negative over 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 negative 1% loss. Um, the total aggregate return, aggregate bond index down, uh, you know, seven, almost 8%. Small caps, small mid caps, Russell 2000 down, uh, almost seven percent long-term treasury still even after a massive bounce over the last uh, you know month and a half plus still down uh, almost 28 percent since since last year so as much as we'd love to talk about calendar years and look at calendar years as performance one year does not make a retirement security it's it's the tapestry of the years and uh, just as important as the return is the volatility of the returns uh, and and the mag sevens are probably a perfect case in point um the bigger a loss that you, or drawdown that one one has on their portfolio or an asset, the the bigger the miraculous recovery is needed, even just to get back to even. So um, you know we're we're happy to have have not you know we, we certainly have gotten got not gotten everything right these last couple of years. We've made plenty of misjudgments, including uh, being in the camp that probably saw a a a much more high likelihood of recession recession kicking in earlier this year that didn't come to pass. Um, call us, call us in that camp. We we aired on that, um, but we still did pretty good. And and uh, you know we we've navigated the, the last couple of years, I think, uh, uh, as as well as we could have without ignoring what still is a, a nasty, nasty macro picture. Never minding the next you know few months as as to what that might hold. All right. Well, let's let's actually go on to your next slide there because of course the the, the chart you just showed. Um, is very reflective of how the majority of the market has been very wrong in the past two years, right? At, at, at the end of 2021, the uh, market was hitting new all-time highs, and there was a strong sense of, look, this is going to the moon, right? Goldilocks forever. Everything is awesome forever. Uh, and then 2022 hit, and investors were reminded that, oh my gosh, you know, portfolios can take losses. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end of 2022, everybody was still, you know, incredibly sure that there was a recession that was going to happen and it didn't materialize. In fact, we actually had a really strong year in the markets. So, of course, a lot of people are scratching their heads right now saying, well, does that mean that folks are going to be surprised going into 2024? Because, again, animal spirits are running wild now, especially in the wake of uh, the Federal Reserve kind of giving the green light uh, to the markets. And, uh, you know. It sort of begs the question. Everybody is really optimistic for 2024. Um, recent history has shown when the market has strong emotions at the end of a year, those emotions tend to be exactly the wrong ones for how they, the future year unfolds. So I know we don't know what's going to happen next year, but I'm just curious your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, so this this chart that I think you just asked me to pull up, Adam, this probably speaks to that probably better, better than anything. This is a poll done by Bloomberg Opinion not too long ago, early December, uh, and it's a poll of economists and their expectations for you know what kind of landing slash recession. And a, a full nearly 50% uh, are anticipating a quote-unquote soft landing, Goldilocks, right? Uh, uh, and only about a third are, are anticipating recession in the next 12 months. That's pretty stark contrast to a year ago when it was something like 85% of economists were, were expecting recessions. Now, two things jump out of here. The, the, perhaps the, the folly of trying to make those predictions, at least with precision of timing. But also, I think, and you just kind of touched upon this, I think when, when sentiment shifts so far in, in, in one view, that view is likely to be proven wrong. And certainly it was last year this time uh, when, when everybody was predicting recession. And I might say there's a pretty good chance that uh, this, this kind of latest poll is, is, is going to be in for a surprise. Uh, no, no, uh, no guarantees whatsoever, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll watch our indicators in the market. And, you know, uh, the market is not a very good uh, uh, predictor of recessions. In fact, the stock market typically is at its peak right before a recession. So we're, we're going to, you know, not, not let the market kind of blind us as to the bigger picture, but uh, a lot of, a lot of pie in the face, egg in the face. And, and I think we'll see more. The big, um, you know, the big, uh, I think, news item today, Adam, is the, the standoff that the market and the Federal Reserve is having in, in regards to interest rate expectations for the year ahead. Uh, last Fed meeting, uh, the, the Jerome Powell um, communicated a, a dovish tilt um, on behalf of the Fed that basically acknowledged, hey, we're, we're, we're thinking that there might be some rate cuts next year, even though two weeks earlier they, they were saying we're not even thinking about talking about having rate cuts, right? They, you know, it's pretty, pretty an about shift. Um, but the, the communication at that time was, hey, we, you know, we think maybe up to three cuts, maybe we'll see the, the effective federal funds rate go from 5.3-ish area to 4.6 by the end of 2024. And what the market did with that, they they put that in their they put that bit in their teeth and and um, you know took a mile when the Fed was only given an inch. Uh, the market is priced in six to six and a half, maybe seven rate cuts at, at one point. And um, I'll show you a, a chart here in a second, um, just what the market Im implication is or what the market's implying. All right, so this is from the CME Fed Watch. I'll just give you a quick tour of what this. So right now, the current target federal fund rate is between five and a quarter, five and a half. That's right here, five, 525, 550. Um, here are the meeting dates for the Federal Reserve next year. So the market's pricing in about a 16.5% probability the Fed will drop a quarter basis point at the January meeting. Um, let's jump away out to the July meeting. Ver essentially zero probability the market is, is is assuming the Fed will have kept at the current rate. And in fact, that zero probability that they'll even be a quarter point lower than here. In fact, most of the probability, about 80% right here, has the rate at four, four and a half or or lower and, and a, a not insignificant amount, you know, down to 4%. So that's already, uh, even just by mid-year, uh, vastly um outpacing the Fed's own communication in terms of the, the level of, of rate decreases we might see next year. And if you go out to December, I mean, geez, look at the bulk of the probability is, is 4% or lower. So the, the market is, has way front run the Fed here in terms of 
of rate policy. I think uh, it, it probably portends for a brutal, brutal bloodbath in one way or the other. Either uh, you know maybe the Fed does uh, drop rates like the market expects, but if history is any guide, that will likely be be because it's it's simultaneous with a nasty, nasty market sell-off and probably a very, very significant economic slow slowdown, which. Uh, doesn't bode well for things like the stock market, uh, as bullish as things might see in, seem in the, in the very near term. Uh, but there's also, I think, a very good chance that the the, the market's got this wrong, and and the Fed uh, doesn't meet its expectations of rate drops. And and for the same reason, we might see uh, assets sell off for that because inflation might um, you know be tempted to rear its head again. I think we're in for a, a kind of a binary show here eventually, uh, one way or the other. And it, it, this this I, I think is is probably the best illustration of where the market is at odds with um, certainly what the Fed is is looking at. Yeah, uh, and, and I got to tell you, John, like this was where I'm particularly flummoxed by the Fed because the market taking a, a mile when the Fed gave it an inch has been the story for the past year plus, right? The Fed has met every time and said, look, um, we're going to be higher for longer. And the markets would say, we don't believe you, right? And the market would play chicken with the Fed. And all along the way, the market has had to back off and realize, oh, you know what? I guess Powell actually meant it, right? And the market has had to readjust and readjust and readjust, but it hasn't mattered, right? Um, in other words, asset prices kept grinding higher all year, right? And to a certain extent, that was frustrating to the Fed, right? Because it, the higher the market would go, the looser financial conditions would become, right? Which was contrary to what the Fed was trying to do with its hiking and tightening. Um, so I just don't know why Powell went and basically just unlocked every cage at the animal spirit zoo in this last one. He's reaping, I think, exactly what he should have known he was sowing by doing that. And now to your point, we have this massive gap chasm in expectations between what I think the Fed wants the world to expect and what the markets want here. And yeah, you know, either somehow miraculously, uh, the track record keeps continuing where the market takes a mile and it doesn't matter and asset prices can can catch up to that. I have a hard time like rationalizing that script um, short of just continued rising net liquidity like we've been talking about with Michael Howell and Simon White and some of the recent folks here, which could definitely play a role. I think it probably will. But, you know, a six to seven rate height expectation, a rate cut expectation next year is a pretty massive one. And so I agree with you, uh, John, that either the market's going to have to be disappointed and walk back some of this exuberance, or it's going to get what it's expecting, but not for the reasons it's expecting it, like you said, and that we have a real crisis that requires that type of scramble by the Fed. And that's definitely not going to be asset, asset friendly. So who knows? You know, it's going to be an interesting year. We'll certainly say it for that much. Yeah, Adam, you know, I, I want to make a couple of comments on liquidity because there's been a lot of debate, a lot of good uh you know, uh, discussion about that with um, uh, Michael Howell's interview that you did last week and and Simon White, uh, which I thought was a great interview. Uh, I listened to a good part of that on my commute to work and uh, encourage your viewers to to take a listen to that if 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 they haven't already. Um, one 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 kind of point I want to kind of throw out there for consideration and is is this idea. When when we talk about liquidity, whether it's simple measures or more more convoluted measures like Michael Howell's you know balance sheet capacity, 
I think most casual listeners have this notion that there's this kind of cash on the sidelines, this, this pile of money flowing into markets, and that's why they go higher. And I really want to caution people to, to really understand what's going on here, because there is no such thing as cash on the sidelines. When, when cash comes off the sidelines and buys stocks, for example, well, the prior holders of those stocks now are holding that cash. The sum total of cash and stocks and bonds in the system is, is a zero-sum game. It's just a matter of who's holding them. So what I would agree is that liquidity on many different measures probably resorts the urgency by which different types of investors want to be in a certain asset class versus be out of. So you betcha when, when, when liquidity is causing folks to flow into stocks, there's e equal amount of folks flowing out of stocks. And, you know, I can't help but be cynical here when we are at record high valuations that have rarely ever been seen. The notion of a bag holder uh, comes, comes to my mind. Someone's holding the bag when this thing turns and usually it's the most unsuspecting. So I just want to caution folks. It's very important to understand liquidity and how it uh, motivates uh, desire and urgency and, and maybe fear of missing out and kind of that kind of thing. But it's not this visual of, you know, this pile of cash suddenly needing to find a home. It's home and it's always going to be home where it is, just a matter of who's holding it in which, which form. And that's a really important point that I think uh, everyday people have to understand. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's hard for liquidity, at least admitting it for myself, is, you know, it's sort of nebulous to measure. You know, you you talk to guys like Michael Howe and he's got his own proprietary way of measuring it. And Simon's got his own charts and Lance Roberts's firm has their own charts. And um, it's it's somewhat opaque, too. It's not like the stock market where we can just see the flows much more cleanly day in and day out. And so um, the danger is, is to invest in it sort of like on faith, like, oh, okay, I'm making a basically a bet that liquidity is going to keep rising through period X, Y, or Z. Something you have no control over. It's something you can't really track that much. And to your point, John, it might even work, right? It might even be a, an indicator that's positively correlated, but not always, right? And so you're, you, you know, if, if you're going to bet on it, it's not something you should be betting like the vast majority of your your wealth on because it's it's something it's hard to perceive. We all don't really understand it. Everybody calculates it differently and the correlation may not be consistent. Um, so just be cautious of, of listening to one you know, video and saying, okay, well, this is the one way I'm going to invest going forward. That said, I do think it's highly explanative and has been very influential. So I don't want to discount it as well, but I just want to caution people from putting too many eggs in that one basket. Um, all right, John, well, look, we're, we're beginning to approach the end here. Um, like I said, you're, you're the last guest for the year. Um, and what a, what a year it's been. Uh, and I want to thank you again and, and Mike and the team at New Harbor and, and everybody watching and our other partners as well for um, kind of going on my journey this year, which you know has ended up here now at Thoughtful Money. And I think it's ended at a really great place. I'm super excited about what's coming in the future from here. Um, but uh, as we're as we're sort of wrapping up this year and, and you know, looking backwards and being a little pensive, uh I have been asking a lot of my recent guests, John, uh, in addition to these you know, money-related uh, investment recommendations that, that folks make on this channel every week, um, you know, what are some of their non-financial, you know, non-money-related investments they, they encourage folks to adopt? So I want to give you the chance to be able to chime in on that before we turn into a new calendar year. 
Adam, I think that's such a fabulous little tangent you've you've uh, entered into your interviews because we're people. Uh, I can tell you what we do here at New Harbor. We love markets. We love, well, sometimes we hate markets. A lot of times lately we've been hating <laughs> markets, but it's fascinating. But it's really the people that we serve and the people and um, the sacrifice that people make to save and, and do good for themselves. That's really what really makes this special. So I'd like to, uh, there, there's a quote that I came across many years ago that I think says a lot. Um, the, the, quote, the quote is this, a rich life is, or let me, let me, let me, let me back up. The most valuable asset is time, not money. And a rich life is about spending that time well. I think that quote says a ton. Obviously what we talk about here is money, but uh, I think one of the most important investments someone can make is, is choosing how to invest their time. And I know others have talked about uh, the importance of investing time in oneself, improving oneself, taking care of oneself uh, from a physical, spiritual, and emotional uh, health type standpoint. That's absolutely critical. Um, we all know that time is a strange thing. We don't know how much we have. We oftentimes will have far less than, than we realize. And even those that do are blessed with longevity um, make the... I think regretful mistake and oftentimes too late to realize it until it's too late of spending that time on well in, in the wrong ways. And I think about time as something, you know, I, I think um, to give is, is to receive, to receive. And I think um, it's really healthy for folks to be thinking about investing time in ways that can give to others. Uh, parents can think about investing time in their children, uh, not in an indulgent way, but in a caring and loving way and um, nurturing way. Um, people who are caring, you know, have sick parents, like we've all, I know you, you, you've just dealt with this, Adam, and I'm dealing with it. Um, there's not a day that goes by where I, I wish I could spend more, more time with my, my, my mom who's, who's ill. And, um, you know, time is this thing that evaporates, but think about this time of year. We, we've got, this is going to be airing on uh, New Year's Eve day. Folks can give money to charities uh, that you have until the end of New Year's Eve to make a, a charitable donation uh, uh, and have it count for 2023. But I can tell you most local charities, as much as they need money, they need your time. They need you to, to invest your time mm -hmm. in, in your community and in, in a cause that you care about. So that that's really what I would like to emphasize, just the, the the important asset of time. It's it's probably the most important asset we all have. Money's important, but it's nothing if we don't take care of the time that we're we're, we're granted and gifted in this world. I I totally agree. Very well said. Um, it's a good reminder at this this time of year, where most folks have a little bit of break from work and actually have the capacity to spend a bit more time with those in their lives. So make the most of this while you have it. Um, I've been actually feeling that because I've been laid pretty low by this stupid cold. And, um, you know, my girls have been home for the first time. It's been a while since they've, they've both been home together. And I've barely been able to spend time with them because I've been basically unconscious trying to sleep this thing off. Uh, so I've been acutely uh, cognizant of, of the valuable time that I'm I'm not getting to spend with them. And hopefully, now that I'm near the tail end of this thing, I can, I can do more of that before, you know, life intervenes again. Um, one other thing you mentioned, just to be super tactical about it, um, <clears throat> yes, and we, we very much want to uh, spend time with those who we may not have a lot of time left with, like like your, you know, you mentioned your mother there, John, um, and you absolutely should. Um, <laughs> now going through this on my father's side, um, one thing that I think, you know, if you're older, um, 
think about, you know, like, a, I hate to be this practical, but like, think about estate planning, because there's, there's steps that you can take now, either communicating things, putting things in writing, working with a lawyer, getting things lined up, where you can save so much time and uncertainty uh, for those that are going to survive you once you go. Um, because I know, you know, having done this now twice recently, there's an awful lot of time where we've just spent trying to guess, you know, what should be done um, because the, you know, the, the, the parent whose property this is or relationship this was or whatever, right? We just, they never communicated what they wanted done, right? And you get a lot of time tracking down documents or conversations with all the people in their lives trying to sort of jerry piece back together what might have been, you know, their desire here. Um, so, you know, use the time you have to not only, um, you know, spend lots of time together and make new memories, also use the time you have to try to save a lot of future wasted time for those in your life. You're nodding as I'm saying this. Yeah, that's uh, one of the hardest conversations to have with oneself, never mind one's family, your your own mortality and planning. But I can tell you the clients we help have have that oftentimes it it turns into a surprisingly healthy and, and endearing and, um, you know, warm conversation between them and their loves and loved ones that rather than something that they both dread, it becomes a, a, a source of bonding and celebration of the life that they currently have. And, and, uh, it almost, um, brings into a picture of their, you know, one's ultimate passing as, as being a joyful event, not, not, a, not as somber event as it needs to be, uh, because, things have been talked about, about legacy and what the meaning of life is and, and this and that. And it's less about the assets, but more about the tapestry of a life. Yeah. And, you know, and I hate to be grim on this, and maybe that's just the theme of this year with so much loss in it, but, um, uh, you know, sort of passing the torch and talking about transitions uh, from generations, you know, if, Yes, for, for those of us in the sandwich generation dealing with our parents, there's a lot of practical needs that have to happen there and it can be awkward, but it can be great in some of the ways you're talking about. But it's also an opportunity for us to pull up the younger generations into that discussion so that they sort of see the cycle of life and then, okay, my parents are in the thick of this one right now, but I'm going to have to step into that future. And it's a way for them to kind of understand their grandparents and their uncles are a little bit more um, before you know they end up passing away and they just they feel more i think invested in the ongoing family legacy that that lives beyond any one just single generation right so um it just just something to think about and one last morbid thing on this and i promise i'll, I'll end on a happier note but is and you see this a lot john um i think with with your clientele is sometimes we lose people before they're actually physically gone Right. Where we have so many seniors who are living now to longer ages where it's something like dementia or Alzheimer's that kicks in. Right. Um, and so, uh, again, it's this sort of planning that we're talking about, these these communications and whatnot, while everybody's still there and of sound mind and whatever. Uh, super important to have them because sometimes the person, you know, may actually leave before the body, you know, does. Um, and so anyways, um, I, I, again, I just because we've had conversations in the past, John, about this, you know, getting all the things lined up in place, power of attorneys and all that type of stuff. Uh, very important. All right. But enough of that. Very true. Yeah. And, you know, Adam, the great yeah. part, you have those conversations, then then the conversation turns to what you want your party to look like when you die. We've had clients say, I want live jazz and lots of shrimp. You know, it, it, it can be a really a really fun, fun discussion. It doesn't have to be a, a completely more morbid discussion. 
All right, right. Well, okay. And again, too, you know, this is also um, uh, the time of year, too, where, you know, planning for next year, you get to talk about the fun things like birthdays and weddings and all that type of stuff and new life coming in and whatnot. So anyways, folks, um, however you're spending your your holidays, I uh, hope you all had great Christmases or Hanukkahs or Kwanzaas or Festivuses of, or whatever you guys celebrate. Um, but to John's point about, you know, spending time with people and really making the best use of our time, it's a great time of year to be looking, you know, at, at the full calendar going forward next year and just placing those tent poles in the ground and saying, hey, I'm going to do my best to try to keep life from wrenching those away from me. And what are, what's time that I can commit to the calendar to spend with those people that I want to spend, you know, my time most with and which, which memories do I want to create most next year? And how do I protect and preserve my ability to have those now? So anyways, hopefully that's the way that we're all ending the year here as we wrap up. Um, and, and sorry, John, real quick, just wanted to also compliment you on your thing about giving time. Uh, you know, a lot of times when on this channel, we'll talk about investments and whatnot. A lot of people be like, oh, that's great, but I don't have as much money as maybe, it, you know, it requires to make X investment or whatever, but we can all give a bit of our time. And especially when we're talking about locally and the ways that we can make difference, like you said, sometimes even more than your dollars. A lot of your local, uh, you know, resource organizations want most people's engagement um, and their their sweat equity, you know, basically to help make the change they want to make in that community. So anybody can contribute to that. All right. Well, look, and wrapping up here, um, if you've enjoyed uh, this conversation with Jim, the postmortem here with John, uh, or just uh, everything that we're trying to do at Thoughtful Money this year, please do us a favor and show that support by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below. What was that little blue icon right next to it? A uh, blue bell icon right next to it? Um, and uh, talking about subscribing, just a reminder for folks, uh, my new Substack, um, which I share lots of information uh, almost daily about the New Thoughtful Money Movement, um, that's where I've been um, republishing my Adams Notes, which are my Cliff Notes summaries um, of the videos that we do on this channel, including this one with Jim Roberts. Um, if you want to get those, uh, just become a premium subscriber. Uh, and if you're thinking about it, become a premium subscriber today if you haven't already. And the reason why is because the low price, it's only like eight bucks a month. It's going to jump up uh, at the beginning of, of January uh, to $15 a month. Still pretty cheap, but but more than it is right now. And if you subscribe before midnight here on New Year's Eve, um, you'll be able to get grandfathered in at that low $8 a month price for as long as you remain subscribed. So Substack tells me if you stay subscribed for the next five or 10 years, your price isn't going to change. Um, so if you're thinking about that, save yourself some money and, and move on it now. Um, and just in wrapping up here, John, um, I will let you have the last word. Um, any parting bits of advice for folks as we head into the new year? No, just just enjoy yourself. Enjoy, enjoy the time that you have. Um, 2024 is coming. Uh, it's going to be an interesting year. Uh, just uh, very much look forward to uh, our continued uh, discussions, Adam. You're, you're, you're doing a fabulous job here with your new channel, and we look forward to great things to come for you here. And uh, you know, we're happy to be a small part of that with you. All right. Great, John. Well, thanks so much. Um, maybe early in the new year, we can have uh, some time in one of these videos just dedicated to kind of kicking around for folks some of the ideas of what we plan to do in 2024 for Thoughtful Money. I think folks will enjoy uh, some of the vision that we have for how we're going to continue to grow this movement here. Um, but in the interim, while they wait, folks, if you are not completely done yet on uh, listening to content in 2023, 
Uh, if you haven't watched it yet, watch the interview that I just released two days ago with Kevin Muir of the Macro Tourist. I'll put a link to it right here. That'll be a really good way to close out the year. John, my friend, thanks so much for all your partnership this year. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Goodbye, Adam. Thank you. Happy New Year's, everyone. Happy New Year.